Hey, everybody, we've already made our big tour announcement for the year. Uh, but this is a little different because we have added a show because Denver sold out. So we've added a second show in Denver. Nice. Yeah, we're going to be there on Wednesday the 27th. We added a show the day before. Same place, Gothic Theater, Englewood, Colorado. And you can go to SYSKlive.com to get info and tickets for that show and all the rest of our shows too, Chuck. That's right. Boston, April 4th. D.C., April 5th. St. Louis, May 22nd. And Cleveland, Ohio, May 23rd. Come out and see us. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry over there. So it's Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. Clean studio version. I know. It feels a little weird in here. <laughs> like uh, like it's too good for us or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, just so you folks know, uh, Jerry test a couple of the uh, editor engineers here with coming in and cleaning up the pile of spaghetti that used to flow from the back of her workstation. Nice. Not that it was Jerry's fault, and she said, clean up my mess. Well, she clapped twice in rapid well, succession. They know what that means. Right. <laughs> the whole office. I mean, up. snap to it. <laughs> Looks good, though. It does. But what now is- we actually have room to put stuff, so we should put some stuff in here. I agree. It's a little bear. A papazon right there? That'd be nice. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we could fit a small papa's on. Most people don't realize, but this place is lousy <laughs> with Ikea lamps. I mean, everywhere. And like yeah. the cheapest ones. Like they're, one of them's on fire right now. Yeah, that one. Oh, uh, yeah. Smoldering. <laughs> Smoldering's still fire, Chuck. Speaking of fire. Yes. You want to know somebody who had some fire in her? <laughs> More than most people realize? Yeah. Rosa Parks. Yeah. Who is now one of my all-time heroes. Because before the Rosa Parks I knew, again, it was like the Harriet Tubman episode. Right. Learned about her in school. Um, she was a great American. Respect her. Revere her. Here's why. She didn't give up her seat on the bus. No. Yeah. Like, not only is that, like, just the tip of the iceberg, it, it wasn't until about the last five or so years, I think. No, about the last four years. That like a full picture of this woman and who she was and like what she stood for and what drove her emerged not just to the public in general, but to, to historians even because her personal papers were basically held up in auction for years and years and years. And now, now that they've been donated for 10, like 10 years to the Library of Congress, yeah. we're starting to get a clear picture of her. And she was even more worth revering than, than people knew before. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, what the story isn't uh, is Rosa Parks was just a quiet lady who was super tired on the bus one day, yeah, her, so she didn't want to get up. Her dogs were yapping. Yeah, not true. And she even makes a point uh, in her personal paper saying, mm-hmm. uh, I was 42 years old. Uh, I was no more tired than I was after any day at work. Right. But I, what I was tired of was being told to get up by a white bus driver to make room for a white passenger. Right. I was not. My dogs weren't barking. Right. So she, um, she. I think one of the reasons why she was kind of whittled down into this, this woman who was just tired and wasn't going to give up her seat because she shouldn't have had to in the first place, and then she was a very meek, quiet person. Also, is another way that she was drawn. Yeah. Um, I think one of the reasons why she was whittled into that package was. 
because she became an icon for the civil rights movement. Yeah. And one of the things that the civil rights movement had to do for better or worse was to get uh, the establishment, both white and black, mm -hmm. on the side of the civil rights movement, which was a movement of agitation. Um, and if you agitated at the time, this is the Jim Crow era. Yeah. That meant trouble. This wasn't like just trouble like people are going to yell at you on Twitter. This was trouble like the the cops might arrest you for some made-up infraction and then beat and rape you on the way to the jail. And then you would end up in the prison system kind of trouble. Like this is the kind of trouble that a woman who refused to give up her seat on the bus faced at, at this time. Um, so the idea of taking a woman who was, I guess, palatable – to as many people as possible, right? And and saying, look at this woman. We need to protect this woman's rights and do what's right. Um, I think that's why she got kind of whittled down into that. But if you looking back now historically, she, there was so much more to her than than just that, and she was certainly not meek and mild. Yeah, I mean, distilling the story down for school books is uh, is one thing, but like, I'm glad now that people can get a more robust picture. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this comes from a website called uh, greatblackheroes.com. had a really good lengthy article. Uh, and then also I want to shout out a book series called Little People, Big Dreams. And it's a kid's book series that we've been reading to my daughter. In fact, it's kind of all she wants to read right now. And they are on uh, great women in history mm -hmm. and kind of brutally honest for to be reading to kids but they didn't it's kind of cool they weren't they didn't <laughs> whitewash anything right. it's sort of like uh Maya Angelou was not treated well by white people like right. you read that to your kid and Rosa Parks is one and then there's uh Frida Kahlo Coco Chanel Amelia Earhart Mary Curie Agatha Christie and more but um but it's pretty man. brutal like they draw Amelia Earhart's skeleton on the beach, kind of brutal. <laughs> you know what? That's the only one we haven't gotten to yet uh -huh. because every night it's read Frida, read Frida. Oh, uh, really? But it's literally like Frida Kahlo is lying in the street after she gets hit by a, a taxi and she's bloody and her legs don't work again after Jeez. that. So, I mean, it's pretty brutal stuff, but I don't know. It's kind of cool. Like kids can read the stuff and digest it, I think. Sure. It's a good way to begin them on the path toward true stories. And to sharpen them. To like a razor's edge at a young age, you know. Look out for taxis. <laughs> yeah, that's good. You know, that's good advice at any age. All right, so Rosa Parks. Uh, let's go back to where she was born in Tuskegee, Alabama, on February fourth, nineteen thirteen. Mm -hmm. uh, to well, she was born Rosa Louise McCauley to James and Lenora McCauley, who were a carpenter and school teacher, respectively. Right. Uh, her parents split. I guess she – I don't know how old she was. I guess she was younger than six. But her father went to go look for work up north, and her mom wanted to stay in the south. So uh, she and her mom and her brother moved in with uh, her mother's parents, her grandparents. Mm -hmm. And her grandfather played a really distinct role in shaping her because she moved in with them when she was, like I said, around six. Yeah. And at the time in this place, Pine Level, which is outside of Montgomery, Alabama – uh, there was a lot of Klan violence, a lot of violence against blacks at the hands of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. And um, her grandfather was not having it. He was actually – he was the son of a slave woman mm -hmm. and a slave owner. So he was, um, I believe, half white. Uh, he was he was a slave himself. He had an owner um, 
at a young age who really brutally mistreated him, tried to starve him for a little bit. And her grandfather developed um, what she called an, a very intense, passionate hatred for white people and definitely imparted that to his daughters and his granddaughter, grandchildren, wouldn't let his grandchildren play with white kids, didn't let his daughters work for white families. He was very much, um, and it sounds like pretty well-founded, against white people and definitely some of that rubbed off on Rosa at the very least her eyes were opened to just how unjust the system was at the time when she was growing up well yeah and just it wasn't even just through his eyes like she <clears throat> went to a segregated school that she had to walk to right white students were picked up and bused to the school um, she went to uh, an elementary school called the Montgomery Industrial School for girls a uh, very cool school. It was created uh, by some uh, northern white northerners uh, to basically um, try and foster education in these more rural black communities in the south. And that didn't go over well, educating kids. So that school was burned down twice mm -hmm. and uh, then couple that with all the you know, influence from her grandfather. And it's no surprise that Rosa Parks from a very, very early age was uh, was an activist. Yeah. So, and being an activist, we're talking like from age six onward, right? So it, she dropped out of school, which would have been a huge turning point. Um, she had to take care of her grandmother and then I think her mom later on because they both fell ill. Mm -hmm. And she met, I think, at age 17 or 18, and then later on at age 19 married her husband, Raymond Parks. And he uh, encouraged her to go back and finish school, and she did. It was a huge move because she was very much meant to be an educated person. Yeah. So um, the fact that she, she met Raymond was a huge influence in that respect. He was also a big influence on her because she said that he was the first activist, like real activist, that she ever met. And I believe this was even before the NAACP was in town. This guy was like a grassroots activist, uh, and he and his group were basically armed do you remember in the Black Panthers episode where, oh, yeah. like, the whole idea of arming yourself came mm -hmm. out of the South? Yeah. Um, so this guy was like Raymond Parks was one of the the real deal people who originated that. Um, and he and the group of activists that he um, he met with, uh, would they would all come to the house and everyone would have a gun. Uh, and apparently Rosa Parks said sometimes there were so many guns on the table that she didn't have any place to set the refreshments during these meetings. Yeah. But these meetings weren't like, you know, how are we going to get white people back? It was how are we going to protect like the Scottsboro boys from false rape, rape accusations? Um, he was a, he was an a, a early pre NAACP activist in Montgomery. Yeah. And later on was a member of the NAACP. Uh, we should do a show on the Scottsboro boys at some point. Yeah. Uh, it's too much to get into here, but the short version is um, a, a group of black men on a train were accused of rape uh, by two white women who um, just made up this story, basically. Yeah. Uh, went to trial a few times and, um, well, you know what? We'll, we'll save the outcome. Okay. Because <laughs> there are all kinds of outcomes because it went to trial so many times. Um, so she did finish high school and she became involved – along with her husband in the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP and worked as their uh, secretary for 14 years. So uh, not only was she an activist, but she was um, involved in, in service of these organizations. Like she worked for them, like whatever you need done, I will do. 
And anyone who's ever volunteered like knows that, um, I guess, foot soldiers, for lack of a better term, are some of the most important people to like in the Black Panthers episode when, mm-hmm. you know, the, the women didn't get nearly the recognition they, they should have gotten right. for just keeping that organization running on time. So she, but she was more than a volunteer, though. She had some really some jobs with some real gravity, like she was a, an investigator of um, sexual assault of black women by white men, um, which is a very dangerous thing to do because you're going to, like, interview witnesses to crimes that aren't being prosecuted because they were perpetrated by white people. Um, She uh, was a justice for prisoner advocate. She did a lot of, like, really important stuff. And as she was doing this stuff as the secretary for the local NAACP, she was also making contacts that would later become really important in this nascent civil rights movement that largely grew out of the Montgomery bus boycott we're going to talk about. I had no idea how big of an event it was. I knew it was big, but I didn't realize, like, how far-reaching the effects of it were. Oh, yeah. Uh, And this – uh, another kind of important thing happened to her as far as integration goes is she got a uh, job type job at Maxwell Air Force Base uh, mm-hmm. for a little while, which, uh, because it was a federal institution, was integrated. And this was the first time that she had um, – first time she had worked in a – or basically been in a professional integrated atmosphere. Right. Uh, and that along with the uh, Highlander Folk School, which is – maybe we should do a show on that too – uh, in 1955, she went to a meeting, a workshop at the Highlander Folk School, and this is in the hills of Tennessee. Uh, and it is still open today as the Highlander Research and Education Center, uh, not in that original building. But um, it was just this great folk school where they prepared kids for uh, activism, um, workers, uh, tried to get people involved in civil rights. And she actually got sponsored by the white couple that she worked for. Uh, to um, go to these meetings at, at Mont Eagle, Tennessee. So, and that Maxwell Air Force Base you mentioned, one of the things she later said, or I think they found in her papers, was a description of like, because it was an integrated base, the bus service on base was integrated as well. Yeah. So she would be riding next to like a, a white friend on the bus on base. And then once they would get off of the bus on base and get onto a city bus, they would have to stop their conversation and get into the different sections, the white section and the colored section. And that was just the reality of it. Um, And one thing that has really come through from her papers is that she made a conscious decision to to never normalize that, to not be like, well, that's just how it is. That's just life. That she would never let herself do that. Instead, it was, this is, this is messed up. This has to be changed. Um, she was able to get through her, her day with this knowledge, but she was never like, this is normal or this is okay. Yeah. I mean, she said it required, I think the quote was a lot of mental gymnastics <clears throat> just to survive day to day as a black person in America. Right. Uh, so in other words, yeah, not accept it and do everything I can to wrap my head around what I can do moving forward. Right. Uh, should we take a break? Yeah, man, I think so. All right, we'll take a break and we'll come back and we will um, start on December 1st, 1955. Very important day.
All right. So it's December 1st, 1955. Uh, Rosa Parks is working as a seamstress mm-hmm. at the time at a department store. She gets off work like she does every day and boards bus uh, 2857, the Cleveland Avenue bus at about 6 o'clock. Uh, and here's the deal with the buses at the time is uh, there were a certain amount of rows set aside for white people. And then there was a sign that said, you know, black people, or they probably said colored people back then, can sit from here back. But that sign could move. So as more white people get on the bus, the bus driver gets up and moves that sign back and says, all right, black folks, you got to get up, get out of your seats, because now the white section is here and just keep doing that until ostensibly the entire bus could be full of white people and they just say, sorry, you all have to get off. Right. Yeah. You either had to get up and move your seat. If there were not seats left, you had to stand. If there was no standing room, you had to get off the bus. Right. Um, and then if the bus you were getting on, if you were African-American, if the white section was already full, you had to get into the front of the bus, pay, get off of the bus and get onto that back door. You couldn't even walk through the white section. Right. And then you, you know, you could take your seat in the colored section. So, um, there was a lot going on here. At least half of this law was unwritten custom, right? Right. The local ordinance in Montgomery, Alabama said that buses had to be segregated. There was a white section and there was a colored section, they put it, right? All that stuff about moving the sign, about getting up and, like, having to leave the bus if there wasn't any standing room for you if more white people came on. Yeah. All of that was just customary. That was not law. That was not the local ordinance. But it was so practiced on a daily basis that it might as well have been the law. For sure. Um, And that's really all that matters is if everyone was playing ball. That's what was going to happen. Yeah, you know? because like the the courts would even prosecute as if you had broken the law, right? If you had not actually broken the law, but had broken this custom. So yeah, for all intents and purposes, it was the law. So uh, the driver of that bus was uh, one James Blake, and Rosa had uh, well, she had a long memory, and a previous incident with Mister Blake twelve years previous, uh, nineteen forty three, she had paid her fare. And like you were talking about with um, the fact that they couldn't even walk through the white section, mm-hmm. he said, you got to get off the bus, go around to the back, uh, force her. Well, she had already gotten on and said, no, you got to re-enter on the rear. She got out and he was like, psych, closed the door and drove <laughs> off with her bus fare. Right. Yeah. She had already paid. Yeah. That was the 1943 incident. Right? And she remembered 12 years later sure. who James Blake was. I would probably not forget that bus driver. Of course either. not. So on on this day, she got on, and um, she took her seat in the colored section. And when she sat down, again, she was behind the sign. And I guess after a couple of stops, and think about this, man. Imagine riding the bus and say you have like seven stops. Think about that pit that would be in your stomach on a daily basis. Like, am I going to have to get up? Right. Am I going to have to be humiliated? Am I going to have to give up my seat to a white person? Because even if somebody who was told that they had to get up because a white person needed to sit there, even if they just kind of quietly complied, that that doesn't that doesn't get the point across how they were feeling right then. Anybody would be humiliated by that. And I, I read that one of the reasons why buses, not just in Montgomery, but throughout the segregated South, they were kind of flashpoints because they were – 
people were in such close quarters. It was the racism was right up in your face oh, yeah. in front of a bunch of other people. So the humiliation was even more pronounced, right? So so Rosa Parks gets on the bus, she takes her seat in the colored section, and after a few stops, some white people got on and the uh the driver, James Blake, um said that uh it was time for them to move, that these white people needed a seat. And uh, he was moving the the sign back uh, at least one row. Yeah. So at this point, um, there's uh, one white dude left without a seat. Uh, so as is custom, he made four black folks get out of their two seats on that row. Everyone had to move back because there had to be a whole new white row just mm-hmm. for this one guy. Right. Three of the passengers got up and moved. Uh, Rosa Parks just slid over to the window seat and sat there. And he said, are you going to get up? And she said, no, I'm not. He said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have to call the police and have you arrested. And she said, you may do that. (laughs) That's awesome. I know, man. I mean, just so brave. And so the police did come. She was arrested. She was booked, charged uh, with uh, disorderly conduct and uh, bailed out by Clifford Durr and Edgar Nixon, who were the uh, local president of the, uh, the chapter of the NAACP at the time. Right. So, um, so she's out at least temporarily. Yeah, the next evening. So she spent the night in jail. Uh, I don't, I didn't run across any, any statements or, uh, any kind of evidence that she was like physically mistreated or verbally abused by the police. Um, but that, that seems to be unusual for people who were arrested for not giving up their seats on the bus. What, that she was not mistreated? Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they didn't throw out the welcome mat. No, you know, no, but um, there. So, well, this is actually this is noteworthy here. Do you want to talk about how she was not the first person that year, not the first woman to have been uh, arrested for not giving up her seat on the bus? Yeah, sure. This is something I didn't realize, and I think a lot of people didn't realize this, but there were at least two other women in Montgomery who were arrested that same year. Uh, one was uh, Claudette Colvin. Mm-hmm. She was 15 at the time. Yeah, wasn't she pregnant too? She got pregnant afterward. Oh, okay. Um, but she was uh, 15, and uh, she, in March, was arrested for not giving up uh, her seat on the bus. Um, she said at the time she was scared to death, but she felt on one side Sojourner Truth was holding her down, mm-hmm. and on the other side Harriet Tubman was holding her down, and she was not about to get up. So they they took her off the bus and arrested her, and um, apparently she was ridiculed and treated rather roughly. Um, there was another woman. Her name was Mary Louise Smith. I believe she was 18 at the time. She had been arrested like uh, in October um, for the same thing. I didn't get the impression that she was necessarily treated roughly. Yeah. But um, but Rosa Parks, when she was arrested, from what I can tell, she was treated like the the uh, with the respect that would be afforded to a middle class black woman at the time in Montgomery, Alabama, which is to say, with maybe the slightest measure of respect, which is to say she wasn't beaten on the way to to jail. Uh, There's a book, by the way, called Claudette Colvin, colon, Twice Toward Justice from Phil Hoos or Hoos. And uh, I think a lot of people these days are trying to shine a little light on some of the lesser known figures of the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and books are being written and stuff like that, which is pretty awesome. And she she was asked, Claudette Colvin was asked, like, why? Why does she think it was Rosa Parks and not her? And she had a whole list of reasons, and all of them are pretty legitimate that, you know, Rosa Parks was a, a very 
again, a palatable person to mm-hmm. a large swath of people. Uh, and more to the point, she was also 15, and the NAACP didn't think that a 15-year-old was going to be the most reliable icon to kind of project into the national forefront. Yeah, not to say um, that a lot of people have said over the years that it was staged So, because they set Rosa Parks up uh, – or not set her up, but they, they picked her to do this because she was palatable. Right. They staged this whole thing to make – which, you know, would have been fine uh, if that's the way they want to kickstart the bus boycott. But from all accounts, it was a uh, in-the-moment decision. She said, I didn't know that I was right. going to get arrested and I was going to sit down. Yeah. It's just something that happened. And so so on the one hand, the people who say that, no, this was staged, um, the NAACP and even before the NAACP was around, buses had been like a target of uh, black activists in Montgomery in particular for yeah. decades. I think the first bus boycott was in 1900. And it wasn't even a bus. It was a trolley line yeah. is what was boycotted. So she and, – and having already been the secretary of the NAACP and an activist herself for years by then, she must have been fully aware of the potential outcome, yeah. which proved to be the actual outcome from her arrest for not giving up her seat. But the idea of saying that this was all staged, it does a couple of things. It's almost like um, a casually racist way of just kind of diminishing it because it, it does two things. One, it takes away her bravery because if if it was sure. if it was staged to make her own she decision had support the whole time yeah. would it, it would have taken away a measure of of fear um and then secondly it also makes the NAACP look kind of sneaky like they're socially engineering stuff and then pretending like that's not the case so i think by saying like no this was staged it, it really undermines the reality of the situation which is that this brave woman said she'd had enough yeah and you're right she probably it probably occurred to her the ramifications of this, but surely I bet you anything in the moment she was just like, nope, nope, not getting up. Uh, That's what I understand. That's what she's always said. Yeah. So um, here's what happened from there. She was arrested. Like I said, she gets out on bail um, over that weekend. A bunch of churches got together and they started talking boycott um, on the uh, winter trial comes around. There's a group called the Women's Political Council. And they handed out 35,000 handbills uh, that basically said, uh, please, uh, children, grownups, don't ride the bus at all on Monday. Please stay off the buses on Monday. Let's really try and uh, make a difference here because it was, uh, I think at the time, uh, black people made up 75% of the passengers. Yeah. Um, so it, it could have a real impact on, like, the finances of the bus company. Yeah, and it just started out as a boycott for – one day for the Monday following Rosa Parks' arrest, which was the happened on a Thursday, uh, and they were just going to do it for one day, but the the success of it was so surprising. I think they were hoping for like fifty percent reduction. It turned out I saw both ninety and ninety nine percent reduction in ridership by African-Americans that day. Right. And if they make up 75 percent. That's a big loss. Yeah. For the city bus line, right? For sure. So it was such a success that they said, well, let's maybe let's keep this going and see what we can do with this. Because initially the demands of the the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955 was that one of them was black black riders be treated with courtesy. Yeah. Pretty low-hanging request. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, another one was that uh, the 
the seats be given on a first come first serve basis, which was the law. Yeah. And that black people sit from back to front, white people sit from front to back. So they were still saying like we can keep the segregation, right? But but people shouldn't have to give up their seats, right? And then the last one was they wanted um, black bus drivers to be hired to drive the predominantly African American routes, right? So that that you didn't have to deal with an armed, yeah, an armed white bus driver because they were armed and they had basically police powers to enforce segregation on the bus. So the original boycott thing, their demands were not extraordinarily radical. And uh, when the boycott was a success on that first Monday, um, they decided to extend it, and they also decided maybe they should expand their demands a little more. So while all, all this is going on, uh, she was she was found guilty on that Monday. Uh, she was fined ten bucks plus uh, court costs of four dollars for fourteen dollars total, and said, uh, "Nope, I'm going to appeal this conviction." Uh, she challenged the basically. She was what she was challenging was segregation in general, uh, not being constitutional. Right, and that ended up being the argument that was. Uh, well, we'll get to the court case and how it escalated, but um, she was found guilty. And um, the other notable thing that happened was uh, one Ralph David Abernathy and Dr. Martin Luther King, who was a young minister in town of Dexter Avenue Baptist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was elected president of what was called the MIA, the Montgomery Improvement Association, mm-hmm. um, which they formed because of the, uh, the success of the boycott. Right. So you have this new organization. Uh, then about a month later, a uh, month and a half, at the end of January, uh, Martin Luther King's home was bombed. Um, everyone was unharmed in the incident, but it really ramped up um, the stakes of what was going on. Yeah, well, for sure. And the, they, the, apparently the Montgomery Improvement Association is credited with making the boycott successful. And the way that they made it successful was through a carpool they set up. They bought a bunch of station wagons and put them in the name of some of the uh, black churches in town. And these, these station wagons would basically recreate the bus routes. Yeah. They drove pre, predetermined routes. Um, and they were, they were giving like 20,000 people a ride every day. That's how successful this was. And they put such a crimp uh, in the, um, the the finances of the city bus line that a couple of things happened. One, they uh, had to lay off workers, close down lines, raise their fares. Like it really hurt the city bus lines. And then secondly, the city, and I believe maybe even the state, Sued the the Montgomery Improvement Association for for this boycott, which is apparently illegal under a 1921 Alabama law. Yeah, they they sued against the car service specifically, saying that the the bus company had an exclusive franchise. Right, uh, and they did get an injunction uh, in November of 1956. Mm-hmm. But all of this uh, comes out of the fact that in like 30 something years earlier in 1921, Alabama passed an anti boycott act. Right. Which basically said that it's it's illegal for you to not ride the bus in this case. In that case, sure. Or at least organize people and get them to not ride the bus. Yeah. Uh, It was something like it was a misdemeanor to organize against somebody carrying out lawful business or whatever. So they were getting them on two things, the boycott and then infringing on the bus lines franchise in that city, right? Right. So what do you do if you are suing or I'm sorry, if you're uh, if you have an anti boycott act 
I mean, you can't arrest everyone. So they go after, um, I think, 89, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and 89 other uh, other members of the MIA. And obviously, because they're the most, I think, how many of them? 24 of them were ministers. Mm-hmm. They're the most prominent members. Uh, and he was fined 500 bucks and uh, spent a couple of weeks in jail. Yeah, he said he's very proud of his crime. He should be. Yeah, sure. So um, now Martin Luther King ha- is um, appealing so we've got a few things going on here. You've got Rosa Parks, who has been convicted and now is appealing her her $10 plus $4 in court costs fine for breaking the city ordinance, even though she didn't. You've got Martin Luther King now, who is appealing his $500 fine for the boycott and the uh, infringing on the bus lines franchise. And then you have something else. You have a class action suit called um, Browder versus Gale. It was um, named after, uh, oh, what's her name? The the woman who's the the lead plaintiff in the case. Her name is Aurelia S. Browder. Uh, and the Gale in the case was the Montgomery, um, the Montgomery mayor, I think William Gale. And we'll talk about that. Well, let's take a break and we'll talk about this case and we'll, we'll come back to the the drumbeat of the court system starting to kick in. All right, so uh, appeals run slow anyway, but in the South, if it's a if it's a case like this, it's going to go super slow because the hope from the white establishment is, you know, maybe enough time will go by. Uh, time will go by, and these people will just sort of get in line and forget about it, right. get tired of this boycott, and everything will just go back to normal. Yeah, which is kind of a gamble because this boycott was not showing any signs of cracking, so they were basically making that bet on the back of the city bus line. And on the jobs of the, the drivers who were being laid off because ridership was down so low. 381 but days. 381 days, right. For the boycott. Um, so the, like I said, the, this court, the, the drumbeat of the court system was starting to grow a little bit louder. Um, and you had three big cases, Martin Luther King's case, uh, Rosa Parks case, and you had, uh, Browder versus Gale. And Browder versus Gale represented four women, originally five, but four women who had been convicted of of breaking the law for not giving up their seat on the bus in Montgomery. One of them was Claudette Colvin. Another was uh, Mary Louise uh, Smith, I believe. And then um, Aurelia Browder. And then lastly was... Susie McDonald. Susie McDonald, right? So... Um, these four women got together and sued the mayor, the bus line, a few bus drivers, uh, the city public works commission, um, just a big group of people. And they were suing to to all three of those cases were suing to question the constitutionality and the legality of segregation in general. Yeah. But specifically on the bus lines. And there was a, a talk at first by Freddie Gray, who was the lead lawyer in the in, uh, Browder v. Gale that um of including Rosa Parks but he very very wisely kept her separate from that case because he said he wanted the courts to just consider one thing not whether Rosa Parks was guilty or not 
but whether the segregation on the Montgomery buses was was legal and constitutional. So yeah. he kept those separate very, very smartly. Yeah, I think he knew that he could get this to the Supreme Court uh, this way. It was a test case. And that was his, his ultimate goal. Sure. Uh, because it was a state statute, though, and the state constitution of Alabama, uh, it was, of course, first brought before district court, uh, three judges in U.S. District Court on June 5th, 1956. And they ruled two to one uh, that segregation was unconstitutional. Uh, of course, they cited Brown versus Board of Education as precedent, uh, and it eventually wound its way to the Supreme Court uh, in 1956 on December 17th. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, that was pretty quick. Yeah, considering. Like, yeah, uh, and they rejected all appeals and voted nine to nothing, nine to zero, that it was unconstitutional. Yep, nine to nothing. Um, which is, I mean, that's really saying something. Unanimous Supreme Court decision regarding segregation. Yeah, in the 1950s. Yeah. So um that was a that was huge. I think uh, Dr. King was in court that day when he was told by a reporter about that decision, the Supreme Court decision. Um and even after uh he said we're we're keeping up the boycott because yeah. we're we'll, when they implement this desegregation on the buses, we'll stop the boycott. Right. And after the Supreme Court ruling came through, the city of Montgomery uh, saw pretty clearly that there wasn't any way to keep this up any longer. And I believe within three days, the buses were desegregated. And on the first day that they were desegregated, Rosa Parks took her seat on a bus uh, in the front row, I believe. Yeah, they hired black bus drivers. Uh, and this is after, by the way, um, 381 days of, of a total sales loss of 65%. So um, Yeah, and on the other side, Ralph David Abernathy's home was bombed. Martin Luther King's right. home was bombed. Uh, people were in jail. Uh, people were in court. It was a big struggle down in Montgomery. Yeah. Uh, so on December 21st, um, Dr. King and uh, his white friend, Reverend Glenn Smiley, sat together on the front row uh, with Ralph David Abernathy, street here in Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. Named for him. Uh, E.D. Dixon and uh, Fred Gray, the uh, the attorney that saw that case. Right. So that was a that was a huge thing. It did a number of things. It made Rosa Parks an icon. Yeah. It projected um, Martin Luther King into the national spotlight. That was basically where he first found national fame. Uh-huh. As and basically was like, well, this guy's the leader of the civil rights movement now. Um, and it also was a huge domino in the idea of desegregation in general, not just on buses, not just in Montgomery, but the concept. It followed in the in the wake of Plessy v. Ferguson, which it was just one of those court cases that said separate facilities is inherently racist because the only reason you would have separate facilities is because you think one group is superior over the other and they shouldn't have to consort or mix. Right. That's inherently unconstitutional. And this was one of those dominoes that fell in that chain that led to desegregation across the Jim Crow South. And it, it, like a laser, this particular case and the, the changes it brought were focused right onto Rosa Parks, her act, her courage, what she did. Yeah, and this was... This was within our parents' lifetime. I know. I was wondering. I was like, why am I so much more jazzed about this than Harriet Tubman? I love Harriet Tubman's story. Yeah. But I remember when I was researching, I wasn't nearly as jazzed. And I realized, like, I can relate to this woman so much better just because this is pretty pretty recent, you know? Well, yeah. And, and just the, the notion that uh, 
where we are as a country now racially, um, this was not that long ago. Mm-hmm. So for the the people in the camp of saying just get over things, um, African Americans just get over things. It's like this was not hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Right. This was very recently. These like my peers' parents had to live through this. Well. One thing Rosa Parks is now known for, what they didn't realize before, is, you know, she her act in, like, the civil rights movement that grew out of, her, like, the next 10 years, 15 years, there's this idea that around 1970, there was a button put on that, and it was like, you guys were successful, way to go, we can stop doing this now. Rosa Parks is like, no, no, it's not done. This no, hasn't changed. Up until not. she died in 2005, she was like, the struggle's still continuing. Yeah. People didn't realize that about her until this collection was opened. Yeah, she, um, this all came, uh, there was significant cost to her family, to her, her husband. Yeah. Um, her and her husband both suffered through uh, stomach ulcers because of this. They lost their jobs. Um, eventually they, uh, left Alabama, mm-hmm. said, let's go to Virginia. And Virginia wasn't a whole lot better. So they said, all right, let's go to Detroit. Kept going north. Uh, and then finally, after not having a job for a long time, she was hired as secretary for, uh, John Conyers, a brand new, uh, brand newly elected black congressman who, uh, she would work for for 23 years and, uh, Mr. Conyers, you know, he was the one who stepped down last year after sexual assault allegations yeah. after serving many, many years in Congress um, and was a civil rights icon. So it's kind of a very sad ending to that story. Yeah. Uh, but Rosa worked for him um, in 77. Her husband, James, died of cancer. Uh, her brother died of cancer three months later. Her mom died two years after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get the sense that after that, it really uh, it really kind of freed her to really go back to work and devote herself once again to the cause. Right. Uh, because after those family members passed away, she established the Rosa Parks uh, Scholarship Foundation uh, and the uh, Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development and wrote two memoirs. Yeah. She was busy. She was. Uh, and then very sadly, I know, I, I remember this, in 1994, um, when she was home invaded and robbed yeah, and by- like, Hit over the head by a guy named Joseph Skipper. Yeah, man, that was just like, I mean, are for, you kidding me with that? For fifty-eight bucks, of all the the houses to accidentally break uh, into. Yeah. Um. I, what do you think he knew? It was Rosa Parks. I don't know. I don't know, but he. I've seen nothing to indicate that that was true. He knew that. Um. That he would go down as the man who robbed and beat Rosa Parks. Oh well, yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he was, he, she was targeted because she was Rosa Parks or yeah. anything like that. I think she's just a little old lady. The impression I have is it doesn't matter if she was Rosa Parks or not. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So she, that was 94, you said? Mm-hmm. And then, like, right afterward, there was a huge national outcry and she, um, moved into, like, a very secure, High rise, yeah, in Detroit, where she lived until she died in two thousand five, I believe. She died in that apartment. Ninety two years young, uh, and she had a a, a slew of honors, uh, unprecedented honors in this country. Um, she was transported her body to Washington D.C. Uh, and she laid an honor under the rotunda, the U.S. Capitol. First woman, yep, to get that honor. Uh, the second African American, and the first non government. Um, American ever to have this honor. Yep. 
Amazing. I mean, that is a high honor. Yeah. When she died, every flag on public land in the United States and around the world was flown at half-mast, which is pretty pretty great, too. Yeah, George W. Bush made sure that happened. Uh, and then here's just some of her Lifetime uh, Achievement Awards. Uh, NAACP gave her what's called the Spingarn Medal in 1979, mm-hmm. uh, their highest honor. Uh, she's in the Michigan Woman's Hall of Fame, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Award, 1980. Um, you could have just stopped at the Michigan <laughs> Hall of Fame. Michigan Women's Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1996. Congressional yeah, still. Gold. <laughs> Michigan Women's Hall of Fame. Congressional Gold Medal? No? Mm-hmm. Now we're in a contest. Um, Time Magazine named her as one of the 20 most influential and iconic figures of the 20th century. It's a big one. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, you mentioned George W. Bush uh, ordered half-mast flags in 2005. So, again, there was this this idea that she was just a, a tired little old lady who uh, was quietly brave and didn't give up her seat, and she was kind of meek and quiet. Um, and in 2014, her personal collection, the Rosa Parks collection, was sold to the Howard Buffett Foundation, uh, Warren Buffett's son. They bought it for a song at like four and a half million dollars. And it's something like, I think, 6,500 documents and 2,500 photographs. And it is her personal papers, like notes for speeches, notes for her books, I believe, um, le- correspondence. And it paints this picture that no one had of her before, which was, no, like this lady was an activist through and through her whole life. She was an activist who um, wanted to talk about and agitate for the rights of black Americans and how messed up the situation was that they lived in um, and that she wouldn't normalize this. She would she would learn to 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 deal with it as much as she needed to while she was working to change it. and there was just a surprise to a lot of people when they, they cracked open these papers and found that that picture of her. Yeah. also want to shout out an um, article, How History Got the Rosa Parks Story Wrong. Um, and this was written by the same person who wrote the award-winning book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. Her name is uh, Jean uh, Theo Harris. Theo Harris. <laughs> it's all one word. Yeah, I know. It sounds like it should be hyphenated. It's really easy to say, but how do you say it? I have no idea. I know. I know. But she's professor uh, professor of poli sci at Brooklyn College uh, of uh, CUNY. Yep. Man. Great lady. Yep. So uh, if you want to know more about Rosa Parks, go out on the internet. Educate yourself. I still haven't seen that movie. Have you seen that? No. The uh, About the uh, bus boycott? No. I mean, it, it was a significant event i had no idea um okay well i think i said go search stuff in there somewhere so it means it's time for listener mail i'm gonna call this uh oh tiny things all right hey guys let me start off by saying enjoy the podcast very much fine aside from uh being interesting and entertaining it very much helps my time in the car we get that a lot sure commute helps people would go insane if it weren't for us (laughs) um Several episodes ago, I believe Chuck mentioned that you love tiny things. I do. Josh likes things that are grossly oversized. <laughs> <laughs> that giant pocket watch over there. Yeah. It's kind of a pain. I'm wearing it like Flavor Flight. Uh, he mentioned loving tiny things. There's something extraordinarily satisfying about them. I agree. I uh, love tiny things. Would be remiss if I did not bring um, 
bring you to the Museum of Jurassic Technology. I love that place. I know. I've been there, too. Um, it's in Los Angeles. Uh, there are not one but two fantastic exhibits of tiny things. The Eye of the Needle and Micro Mosaics. I don't think I saw those. Did you? The tiny thing I remember was like the dioramas of the trailers. Hmm. And the Eye of the Needle, I remember that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I don't remember, I remember the micro mosaics, though. I haven't been in many years, though. Yeah, same here. Uh, Eye of the Needle features delightful, whimsical miniature sculptures actually small enough to fit into the Eye of the Needle. Oh, well, there you go. Mm, that's a little too small for me. Okay, so you like... So you like... I like the tiny Tabasco bottles that you get sure. in your <laughs> You like to feel like you're a giant, not like a god. Yeah. Gotcha. Exactly. I just want to be taller. Uh, the micro mosaics exhibit also requires magnifying glass to enjoy. However beautiful this exhibit has a slightly creepy aspect to it. The tiny mosaic pieces are, in fact, bits of butterfly wings. Yeah. That's not too creepy. Well, I mean... Did they kill the butterflies? Depends, yeah. How'd they come across those wings? Were they roadkill? If so, that's fine. Yeah. What a job. (laughs) Go out and just try and find dead butterflies. Yeah. Uh, All in all, these exhibits have a wonderful feel of magic realism. Museum also features a lovely rooftop garden as well as a meditative tea room to enjoy a complimentary cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That is all, guys. Uh, cheers from Sandra Williams. Thanks a lot for the shout-out, Sandra. That is a, indeed a great place. If you're ever in Los Angeles, everybody, go check out the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Just go in with your mind open and thank us later. Yeah, get out of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Or go to both, <laughs> you know. Sure. I said get out of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Okay. Yeah, but I mean Jack Palance, man. How do you how do you pass that up? <laughs> I don't get it. Remember, he was the the host of the TV show. Oh, was Believe he? It or not? Yeah, my brother worked with him on uh, City Slickers too. Gotcha. And there was one story where, uh, you know, he's kind of old at the time. Yeah. Where Scott, as the AD, is to walk him. Second AD is to walk the talent to the set from their trailer. Mm-hmm. And it was through the desert, the rocky desert, and Scott was like. You know, look out for that rock, Mr. Palance, or something like that. And one day he was just like, I don't need you to tell me how to walk. <laughs> and Scott, like, shrank down. Of yeah. course. I can't remember if that's exactly what he said. But but I'll bet I'll bet um, Jack Palance felt so bad for yelling at Scott, <laughs> of all people. I doubt it. You know, it's Scott. And he, he didn't delight in Scott like everyone else does. He's Jack uh, Palance. Yeah. Well, if you want to tell us how great you think Scott is, you can tweet to us. Uh, I'm at Josh Um Clark and at SYSK Podcast. You can also check out my website, RUSeriousClark.com. Charles W. Chuck Bryant is on Facebook.com at Facebook.com slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's also Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know page. Uh, You can send us all an email, including Jerry, to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web. Stuff you should know.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 